Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we're recording. So, Jeff, why don't you go ahead and kick us off, man? Sure. So, uh, we've got Lucas Smith here um, on the podcast tonight. So, Lucas, um, we've you know, been at some talks together where we're fellow PSTs, uh, professional scrum trainers of scrum.org. And uh, we've had a number of conversations and I know you're doing some pretty cool stuff. You, well, it's not even recently, it's maybe what, a year and a half, you moved down to Texas and and uh, started working for Toyota. And I know you've been doing some pretty amazing things. So we decided to be a great opportunity to have you on the podcast and start sharing some of the cool things that you're doing. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, is there, is there, so just kicking it off, like, What's what's one of the cool things that's going on right now or that you're experimenting with with any of the teams you're working with? Well, I guess uh, I'm learning a lot. I, I've been here at Toyota a little over a year. Uh, I'm the head of the Agile practice between two different divisions of Toyota here in Dallas. Uh, one is called Connected Technologies and the other is Toyota Connected. Um, everyone gets those acronyms CT and TC mixed up. Um, but essentially, they are the groups that are responsible for all of the in-car entertainment systems, uh, all of the back-end uh, infrastructure behind that, uh, customer support, um, call routing, uh, data pipelines, data warehousing, mobile apps, basically everything that's going into the in-car entertainment systems. Um, I'd say it's, it is the most complicated picture I have ever worked in. Um, we have what, what many, makes it, many vendors. Yeah, what makes it so complex? Is it the vendors or is it the combination of hardware and software? Or, or you know, It's car- a mix of all of those. So uh, I, I, I would, I've described to people here that the fundamental challenge is, you know, if you've got, if, you, if you're greenfield, right, you can kind of do whatever you want. You know, if you slip a production date or a launch date, you know, most people aren't going to notice unless you've made massive promises to, you know, customers or something. Um, if you have an existing software product that people are using, you know, say Facebook or something, right? If, uh, if I slip a feature date, you know, hey, we want to revamp chat on that, right? If I, if, I, if I slip a date on that, you know, people are still going to keep using Facebook, right? right. Okay, may, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a, a market pressure from competitors, right? You know, if, if, hey, Snapchat's doing some cool stuff, we better catch up with them, whatever. Um, what we, we have is a combination of hardware, software, firmware, um, tons of vendor partners that go into this, and we have a live production line, right? So we have a production line that's already going and is shipping vehicles that have all of our solutions inside of them, right? So if we miss a date and they're cutting over to the new model year vehicles, there's a whole lot of stuff that's got to be lined up directly for that date, right? So it's production line plus a credibly established business model, business line, right? You can't, um, you know, Toyota's selling X number of vehicles, right? So they make millions of dollars a day building vehicles, selling vehicles. They want to revamp that, but there's also a whole lot of risk around that. No one wants to mess up that pipeline. Um, so it, those are some of the, the fundamental things that are the challenge, plus, you know, it, we're not just building software internally. You know, Toyota is not necessarily going to build an entire mapping application that goes on their vehicle. Sure. Right? So 
we're working with all the major partners to get that on the vehicles as well. And then they have to connect in, you know, they have, we have to build a UI around that, make sure that plays. They have to be able to connect into the, the infrastructure and the data routing. So that's just like one piece of it. Plus, you know, if you've got a voice assistant or virtual assistant, that's got to connect in with another mapping solution. Um, so you add this up and it is a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, we were just chatting uh, a couple episodes ago with uh, a friend of ours, Rachel uh, Krause, and she was talking about how in the X world with like, uh, you know, the Alexas of the world and Google Assistant and all that kind of stuff, like what does that do to, you know, user experience and how does that change it? And you think, oh, it makes it easier. There's no, you know, you interface, right? But it actually, you know, there's so much more variability when you have to deal with that. So it actually makes it much more complex. Um, and so, yeah, I can imagine you've got all of that. Uh, it's not just one component that makes it complex. You're integrating everything all the time. So yep. that, I, yeah, that sounds like a very complex environment. So how, well, like, what are some of the things you're doing to like help manage that complexity? Like, how do you, how do you, you know, move through that chaos? That's a good question. So I would say, you know, I, I wish, in some ways, I wish we could move faster on some things. Some things are just the cadence of the vehicles, right? Okay, we can go this far in this model year. We're going to go this far in this model year. Um, I think one key thing is choices on what we insource, right? So I have, you know, if, if I look across the spectrum of agility, I've got teams that are building software and shipping software to production, you know, every day. Um, you know, I've got teams that are doing it every couple of weeks. Um, I have teams that are managing vendors who own the IP, and some of them are working in an agile fashion. Teams that are managing vendors who are not working in an agile fashion at mm -hmm. all. Uh, we have hardware going on that's not super agile. Um, and then we have big platform that's trying to pull it all together and manage the vendors. And I've got a mix of project managers and scrum masters in there uh, trying to, to pull that piece together. So. One is meeting the teams where they're at. Um, two is making intelligent choices about how we insource stuff. Uh, we've made some big insourcing decisions uh, in this, this next generation system. So some of the key pieces of infrastructure that our turnaround time and cycle time for getting fixes to has been really long. Um, we've made a choice to insource. Um, I don't think we're gonna choose that for everything. Like, I don't think we're gonna replicate Google Maps, right? <laughs> Um, there's a, you know, that would be billions of dollars of investment just to do that. Um, but making choices on smart insourcing, um, all the vendors, uh, we're looking at all the contracts with them. How can we build a better, uh, trust relationship there? Are they going to partner with us? Um, so it's restructuring contracts, um, focusing on cycle time, going and helping vendors, right? So we've spent a good bit of time with some of the vendors, helping them understand how we want to work, um, you know, yeah. paying for a dedicated team there. Um, so those are those are some of the initial ones. Also just trying to think about our, our hardware platform and make it uh, the changes um, so we can integrate the software sooner and, and get closer to production hardware uh, sooner in the pipeline. So, you know, may, maybe we um, have a consistent processor architecture, consistent OS, right, that we want to have between the different generations that maybe we haven't specified before. Um, so those are some some of the near-term things. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, the first thing that came to my mind when you were talking through the problem, I'm like, what would I do? And uh, I kept thinking, yeah, what would you do? I was like, <laughs> well, I was thinking like, well, the first thing I would do is the remove complexity. I work in smaller batch sizes, as small as I possibly can, and you know, and get stuff to get integrated as frequently as I possibly can, like with all, as many of the teams as you possibly can. Like, and I understand that's really hard, but that reduces risk and complexity and and you know, rework and all that stuff, right? So, I don't know. I kind of th- was thinking like, okay, the biggest scaling environment I'm thinking of, I can think of, how do you manage the complexity? And it's just like frequent integrations and getting it done as soon as you possibly can with a small. Right, that's the way. To, that's the way to drive the risk out of it, um, you know. And and we've done that in some areas and it's been successful. In some areas, we haven't had as much success just because of the number of teams or if there's a vendor partner that's in the middle of it, yep. and they're on a waterfall cycle. So what do you do, right? You got you have to have some more defined plan. Okay, we can get this far, do as best as we can testing this on prototype units. Okay, then we wait for this and then we do the downstream, right? So there, there's a mix in each of the areas on that. Right. So how do you, you know, this, this is some conversation I've been having with a client recently. It's like, when do you outsource and when do you not outsource? And my advice that I gave them was, well, if it's your core business and you really want adaptability and you want high value coming from it, like I wouldn't ever outsource that. Now, if it's something like billing and payments, like everybody's got it, it's just got to work and it's got to be reliable. Like you want to outsource that? That sounds like a great thing to outsource. And you can give up some agility for some efficiency, maybe in those things, because that's not that's not your moneymaker, right? Like that's not, that's not your core thing. And, and so like, that's at least one guideline that I think about, but like, what are the things that you thinking about when you're thinking about when to outsource and when not to? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, I think you hit on some really good points there, right? It's how core is this to our business? Um, is it a competitive advantage for us? Um, is it a commodity? You know, has it been commoditized already? Are we just trying to replicate something that already exists? Um, and if we're doing that, you know, if we're trying to replicate something that already exists, we have to have a pretty good reason for that. Um, whether, you know, there's a, an issue with the partnership, um, you know, we have a couple of vendors who are supporting multiple OEMs, right? Their, their, their business model is to create a product that goes on multiple different vehicles. Now, in some ways that's efficient, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it costs less to develop that and sell it out to five or six partners, but it's not a differentiator anymore right. for us. Right. So if we want to differentiate, we either have to own it or go with a different partner and pay them more to do that. Um, Other things around privacy and data, that would be another one. Uh, A lot of our decisions have been around that. Um, You know, if you if you outsource your key infrastructure and all the customer data that's going through it, you know, maybe your sales channel, you know, there's a bunch of people who have sales processing or have, you know, an e-commerce platform. If you, if you go through them, now they have a lot of your customer data. Is that what you want? Um, maybe you start there and maybe you make plans to integrate it or swap it out, right? What's your time to market to get that out? And then what is your plan with the data and the privacy around it and the risk? Um, so I think for us, it's been how, how to simplify, right? How to simplify the ecosystem, uh, thinking about which vendors have been good partners for us. Um, and what's going to create a differentiator for us. There's some key areas that we are investing a lot in that we think or we're hoping will be a differentiator. Um, you know, it's 
we could use an existing product. There are some out there, but maybe they were built not specifically for automotive, mm -hmm. right? Or we think we can add something special to it with the skills and knowledge we have. So skills and knowledge is another one, right? Are, do you have a software team that can do that? Um, do you have a data science team? Do you have a machine learning team that can do this, right? Or are you willing to invest in it? Or do you partner with someone else? Earlier, so, you had mentioned oh, uh, cycle time uh, a few times. And coming from automotive manufacturing, that's like the, we, we always use that as an example, right? Like in manufacturing, cycle time, those are the, the metrics that you're looking at. Um, and I'm curious, when you were stepping into that space, um, was it, are you finding more than cycle time? Is that your primary metric? If it, is it just everybody knows it and it's easier to associate? And lastly, like what other metrics are you looking at? Sure, I, I would actually say I was surprised that cycle time was not as important as it was. Um, the manufacturing side is really, really ingrained um, and experts at that, especially when you've got a repeatable process, it's easy to see an investment on a repeatable process mm -hmm. and improving that incrementally. Um, some of the complex situations that we've got going on, it's harder for people to see that. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've had some success using value stream mapping and kind of trying to lay yep. out, okay, what is the value flow across things? Where are the, the bottlenecks? Um, you know, some, so process efficiency flow, um, some of those metrics have been helpful. Um, I do talk a lot about cycle, um, and it's primary, primarily from the customer perspective, though, um, not so much from an individual team. It's, it's more, okay, what, what do we want from a business standpoint on updatability for the vehicles, right? Are we going to target once a month? Are we going to target once a week? You know, there's some business decisions and, um, I don't want to say market, uh, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Market ingestion, or there, there's a limit to what people want right on their vehicles. You're not going to want to mm -hmm. necessarily turn on your car and get a software update every time. So what are we targeting with that, right? And then kind of how do we back out from there? Um, there's a lot of metrics around customer satisfaction. Um, some of the better successes we've had with vendor partners have been where we had some clear you know, whether it was an app store rating or, you know, a bunch of customer views on something and, and we could go to them and not just say, hey, you need to fix this. Mm -hmm. It's our customers are telling us we need to fix this, right? And how are we going to work together to solve that? Um, so, you know, one one app had, you know, been mm -hmm. 500 days since they had a five-star review. Like, that's a key anchor point. It's like, hey, we got to have a problem here. Like, what are we going to do about this? Like, and then, that gets get that got the team on that side, even though all of our incentives weren't necessarily aligned, it got them thinking about that. This isn't just us selling to Toyota. This is our product. Other people care about it. Our name is on it. You know, what are we going to do to improve that? Um, so th those are some of them. I mean, each team honestly has, because I have such a spectrum of teams, um, I kind of sit down in some of the areas and ask people what makes sense, what you know, one of the things I asked the Scrum Masters and to think about was what what is the key customer outcome metric for your team or your product? Like, what does that look like? Right? Is it decreased customer calls? Is it decreased handling time in a call center? Um, is it improved user satisfaction score? Um, is it improved, um, you know, app store rating? Mm -hmm. You know, e each of those is very different. 
Yeah. It's really about using the right tool at the right time, right? And the right metric. Because too often teams just want a recipe or organizations who are like, tell me all the right metrics to use, right? And it's like, no, like it depends. What do you want? And and um, Jeff and I talk about, I've talked about this a couple times, actually, I think on the podcast. And we talk about it outside of this too, where um, there's, you know, player scoreboards and then coaches scoreboards and teams need a player scoreboard that says, hey, it's this is the score. Uh, this is the time left. And like, here's a down and distance if we're playing football or something, you know? And all the other stats are great, but the coaches look at that later when we're not playing the game. Like, so what's those leading indicators? What's that main thing we would need to focus on while we're in the game and we're, and we're moving forward. So I, I like, cause that's kind of what it sounded like you were describing is um, what we call a player scoreboard. Like what is that thing that we really want to drive towards a team that's that leading indicator into those more impact type metrics um, for the organization? Yeah, I, I like I like impact metrics. Um, sometimes it can be hard at the organization level to boil those down. Okay, that's a big impact metric. What yeah. is the work we're doing, and how does it how do how do we see an impact on that? Like, if I take customer calls for example, right? You know, if we're working on eight different things that might improve it, it's kind of hard to run a hypothesis exactly on that unless you have some really narrow data. Like, hey, this particular feature, we get this many calls, right? Okay, if we prove this, how does that look? Um, so yeah, I, metrics are are tricky. We need them, um, and and the closer to the customer side they are, the the better they are. the The further down you go, they can be really gameable. And I I think I like to I like to tell people, you know, think about how this metric can be gamed. Right, that's one of the first things. If you say, hey, we want to measure this, okay, how are people going to game it? understand you created an incentive there for people to either hide something or focus on something else or you know you, you just want to think about that and i think maybe we've even had that conversation on balance metrics right so if, yep. you, if you can be gamed one way how are you going to measure something that might counteract that um, and you kind of want to piece a couple of them together if you can yeah Hey, I want to jump into something you said there and just dive into it a little bit. So you said before you're working a lot with the Scrum Masters to figure out what that metric is for their teams. And um, other people I might talk to in like you're in a similar position and other organizations might say, I would go talk to the Agile coaches. So do you have Agile coaches or do you just do Scrum Masters serve at all three levels of the organization, you know, throughout the organization, the product owner, and the development team, and then you don't really have agile coaches or how does that work at toyota um it's a bit of a mix there's there's a lot of different areas at toyota and honestly each of them is trying a little bit of a different model um i the two divisions i've got are both look a little different honestly um i have a total of about 40 scrum masters project managers and a couple coaches that report to me effectively um we're pretty light on the coaches. Um, there's a lot of uh, focus on the scrum masters themselves and operating at team and above level. Um, so there's, uh, do you know Pradeepa? Yeah. Um, so Pradeepa is working with me. So she's she's the primary other coach I've got. So she's doing a fabulous job, you know, working with a bunch of the teams as well. And she's really good at coaching and giving feedback on that. Uh, but we're really pushing and relying on the Scrum Masters in those areas to do a lot of it. Um, some other areas of Toyota have more coaches, um, and some of it's working well. Some of it, 
honestly, some of the challenge we've had is um, where we're at in our agile journey and with the amount of hardware and with the amount of things going on, we really need people who are can coach people and drive change, but also are willing to do work on the teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, we've had a challenge finding coaches who want to do that. Um, in, in a lot of cases, it's more, hey, I want to help you do something, but I'm not going to step in. And in mm-hmm. some cases, that's not what the teams needed. Their maturity level wasn't either there, either wasn't there, um, or the expectations in that area were a mix. Right. Sure. I know you. When we talked last, was a few months ago. You're telling me about how hard it was to find scrum masters at that at that mature level. Uh, you know, and just filtering through the noise. Um, and. I kind of told this story to some people and some, some clients have been working with him. They're like, wow, like that's, I don't find that that hard of a problem. Am I not looking for the right things? And so, and so we had some conversations around that. And uh, so I, I guess I just wanted to ask you, like, what are those things that you are looking for, for scrum masters? Cause I know, you know, you're, you've had some struggles in the past finding the scrum masters that you're kind of looking for at the right level. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'll, I'll take any tips you have as well and anything you, you found to work. Um, I think I think we've narrowed it a little bit uh, in what I'm looking for. I think, um, honestly, one of the challenge, you know, we have, we have a challenge with knowledge. Just a lot of people don't know the stuff, mm. right? That, so that's a fundamental, fundamental gap. Um, a lot of people have in organizations that have done a quote unquote agile transformation have just picked people off their bench and said, okay, you're the scrum master now. Right. And okay. Maybe they, maybe they get some basic knowledge and basic wrote, uh, you know, do it this way. Um, but if they haven't gone past that and said, why are we doing things, you know, and, and they don't have a, a critical thinking or an analytical skill of saying, okay, what's working, what isn't, what are we going to change? Um, that's a that's kind of a barrier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like there are a lot of a lot of people who don't really understand why why we made this change. Um, so that's one level. Um, I think the other one is, you know, really willingness to meet teams where they're at. Um, you know, like I said, I have teams in vast array, right, of, of agility. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of them honestly, a you know, straight scrum master role is not what they need. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but can I find people who understand higher than just team level scrum or higher than just team level agility, right? They think about business agility. They think about, okay, what is, what is needed from a business context? What is the next step towards that? Is it working with the vendor, right? Is it, trying to think about a contract, right? Okay, maybe they're not an expert on that, but they can at least raise they can at least raise that question and say, hey, do we want to look at the contract here? What are the incentives? Um, can they work with a product owner? Can they coach a product owner? Um, so th- those are those are some of the things. Um, yeah. Certainly, especially in an organization like this, if I have to you know cycle or move people or shift teams, like I need people who can, hey, I'm operating at this this point. And now I'm operating differently based on this team. And that, maybe that's part of why I'm having trouble finding people who are a great fit for that, um, just because I have so many different needs and they're, they're different between the teams. 
Sure. Do you have any, uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Do you have any tips or anything you guys talked about in, in narrowing your funnel, right? And how to, how to screen better. And um, One thing that I really like is like have people practice it. So it's, um, it's kind of a, a tip from Menlo from the book Joy Inc. where they hang and I have their people come in and they say, hey, we're gonna have you pair for a few hours with somebody and solve these problems. They're not even development problems, but like they pair on everything they do and they, and they go and they kind of just see how, you know, basically look for basic kindergarten skills. Can you work well with others? Can you make your partner look good? That's what they're looking for. They don't care if you get the right answer or not. Um, and so uh, one thing you could do is like, hey, what's maybe you got three different teams, different maturity levels, all in different spots. Um, and you know, they're going to do a daily scrums, you know, at a certain time and someone comes in for an interview. And what if you just had them facilitate three daily scrums? And you saw, hey, this is a really mature team. How do they like let the team self-organize around that? Hey, this is a team that's just starting out or really struggling. How do they use some, you know, maybe a little stronger facilitation to make sure that uh, they don't, you know, go off the rails? And here's a team in the middle. And how do they help them inspect themselves as they're kind of going through this and learn how to improve, right? So like just an idea, like you, you'll get to see um, how fast they can, they can read a room and they can adjust their style um in the middle you know in the middle of a kind of a pressure situation because if you're there watching them sure they'll feel a little pressure or somebody you know whoever whoever's kind of uh, walking them through that that process just an idea sometimes yeah i and i've used something similar some uh depending on which type of team they're coming in uh one one thing i've used is say look you know i i'll do an initial you know interview screening with them but then second round is hey meet with the team and plan a 25 minute retrospective right yep. and give them a topic and and just what i'm what i ask them to do is understand try to understand where the team is at you know what are their needs right and and like you said i'm i'm reading okay how do they interact with this team um you know if i have a vendor management team where i've got a product owner and maybe one qa person and they're managing or they're working with a vendor i can't do as much of that right yeah because that, that's a different context and it's really, hey, how do you interact with this product owner? Have you worked in this environment before? You know, what would you say are some of the, the challenges there? But I can't necessarily put them in front of that vendor team, you know, and interview them that way. Right. Um, so there, there's some challenges with a couple of the situations, but I do like I do like that pattern if you have time um, and can invest in that. And if you, I, I, I narrowed down to doing a retrospective um, as kind of the highest value, shortest time item. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so have you tried that? Have you, you know, what was the time commitment? Um, um, you know, usually it'd just be like if they're in there for an interview and you're just like, hey, they know this daily scrum's going on and I've already prepped the team. Can we just walk down there? Would you be okay, you know, facilitating a daily scrum and just, you know, see how that goes? This may not even be the team you're going to work with, but it's like a team and you just kind of prep that team that, hey, we have a candidate coming in. Would you be okay with this? And, you know. If it falls flat on its face, it's 15 minutes in the day. It's not that big a deal, right? And um, and hopefully we all learn something from that situation. Um, so it's, I, I, I think it just takes a little bit of prep to do something like that. Um, but I like the retro idea. I think that's another great one because I think you're going to get a little bit more time with the team. You're probably going to have more time to really see the facilitation skills um, take place. So I, I, I think that'd be a great thing too. Uh, I was just thinking like, yeah. for the events, like, or for like, you know, the business agility, like, how do you look for that? Like their mindset to that. And you might not get that in a daily scrum or a retro, depending on what comes up, you know? 
No, that that's hard. I guess um, you know, I look for situations and what they've done right in the past. You know, and sometimes it's hard to tell whether someone's explaining what they did or what they saw someone else do. Like those are hard things to get gauge in an interview situation. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I know if you look at uh, what Google or or Amazon do for screenings, they really bias um, previous performance or previous outcomes. Right. So, so looking at, hey, what was a difficult situation you were in? When, when did you fail the team? Like, tell me about a situation you failed a team and what did you do out of it? Um, right. So, I, I had a good one, good answer the other day on that. Like, okay, you know, I, I facilitated too much, right, in this situation. And then I was gone, you know, for a couple of weeks, you know, from vacation and the team kind of fell apart. And, the guy said, you know, I saw that self-reflection. He said, you know, I came back and I looked at that and I said, I didn't do a good job teaching them how to do this, right? And that was on me. So, you know, hearing hearing that or hearing the progression and self, self-inspection, self um, that's one of the questions I like. One of the, um, there's, I have a lot of windshield time. I have about two and a half hours and I listen to podcasts at 1.5 speed the whole time. So, it's about three, three to four hours of podcasts that I'm listening to a day. But um, just for context, there's literally one episode that I keep on my, on my, uh, on my iPhone and it's uh, agile for humans episode 16. And I'd like referring back to it every once in a while, because it is, it's just gold. It's an hour and a half of gold. Um, and they spent probably about half an hour. It's Ryan Ripley, Amitai Schleier and, and Arlo Belshi. I pulled it up here because I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, but they they talked probably for like half an hour about um, Arlo's experience in, in hiring. And he tells a really great story about just um, what they found to be so impactful with teams and what you're looking for. And, it you know, this is this is an older, older podcast now, but, it, you know, emotional intelligence and really the idea of skills are learnable, um, especially in our domain. Right. Like we're hiring people. We're expecting them to just be able to pick up a new skill. They, they're not going to be masters of it by any means, but they're going to be able to learn it. It's not a big deal, but the real gel um, that kind of holds teams together and continues to, to kind of propel them forward is that, that that ability to have emotional intelligence and really looking for that. Inside of that, he tells the story uh, very similar to what you were just talking about, Lucas, um, of just like answers that kind of stood out to him. And one one in particular is when they're they're talking about the success that they got was like setting others up for success where it was more like exactly to your thing was, Oh, I actually through self-reflection found out that I was facilitating too much or it was, Oh, through this action, I was actually able to stand up Joe over there and help him overcome something. And especially for that scrum master, at least to me, that's what I would be looking for is that is that servant leader, like how, what am I looking for in how he's talking, he or she is talking, um, to be reflected in those behaviors? Um, anyway, just just a plug for that episode. If you haven't heard it, I, I think it's amazing. Um, I just took then, a note. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing I was going to say was um, back in one of the companies Jeff and I used to work for, um, phenomenal ability to bring in high, highly skilled individuals, just the 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 people that not only did you enjoy working with, but you enjoyed going out and grabbing a beer with after work. The people that I still play video games with years after I've left that organization. In fact, I was just playing volleyball with a group of them tonight, and only one of them is still with that company. But those were the bonds that we built with one another. 
Um, and we invested very heavily in our interview process. And so um, it was a round table. It was a three to four hours of interview and groups of people coming in and very particular about needing the team that that person was going to be a part of, um, part of that interview process, getting them out of just a room, walking them around, even getting them outside of the office just a little bit. I know we had stolen some of uh, Lenciani's stuff. Um, From the ideal team player, yeah, the humble, humble, hungry, smart, right? So yeah. you're looking for people that are humble. It's the we language. It's us. It's the, um, it's, it's not about, you know, building their own personal brand. It's, it's about the whole entire team. They're smart, but not it's emotional, emotional, smart, not like intellectually smart. Um, you know, can they read a room? Can they read people? Can they have empathy for people? And then um, hungry, are they hungry to learn, hungry to improve, hungry to get better? Can they reflect on things and like adjust? So like that story you told me, I was like, oh yeah, I could, I heard humble, humbleness in just the way you told the story from the way the person, you know, responded to your question when they self-reflected on like, I facilitated too much. And then I heard like, hey, they must, that sounds like some emotional intelligence there to me. Like, like they, they must be pretty, you know, they're smart enough to recognize that this was a problem and that I need to make some adjustments. It's not the team's fault that that that's on me for, as a, as a scrum master, I should have, I should have enabled the team there. So like that story, you know, it sounds like a, a negative, but really I hear two, a couple positives out of it. You know, I definitely heard a positive out of that. Right. I, I, I think people who can, and I even look at it for myself, right. You want to think about things that you've done, whether they've turned out good or bad, there's always an immediate impact but there's also lots of other impacts right can you can you put yourself in other people's shoes can you can you take the next step in thinking and say okay i'm just doing this now i'm seeing immediate impact but what are the long-term consequences of this? am i just getting something done now and you know i i like to see that as well so but i will second you guys definitely did a good job of screening i have a lot of friends i think from the the same company as well and it's <laughs> part of the reason i'm connected with you guys uh, so I was kind of off on an, a little bit of an island uh, when I was uh, out out in your neck of the woods. But uh, so I, I have appreciated the the effort, and I'm, I have one of them working for me now. So awesome. So I wanted to to jump in with another question here. It immediately came to mind when you introduced yourself as uh, head of the agile practice. So being head of the agile practice, um, are you asked to? show the value that you're providing the organization? And if so, how do you quantify or show the value that you provide to the organization? Uh, okay, that's a good question. Um, so the answer is yes. Um, the answer is yes for both me and the team. Um, you know, I think I have enough different leaders and different people that we support that you kind of have to answer that question a little differently to each of them. Um, you know, so, some of them honestly are looking for predictability and delivery, right? Okay, well, how do we how do we show you that? How do we reduce risk? How do we create transparency? Um, you know, I think a lot of it is around um, just showing the work or talking through the work that we do with the different teams, right? So if you've got a new team or new individuals on a team, you know, communicating our job is really as servants to you, right? How can we help you? What are your key goals? How can, how can we solve some of your pain points in, in this part of your organization? Like, and, and keeping track of those. Um, so I think 
you know, that that's maybe the first level is is meeting with the, the product ownership and the leaders in the area and just saying, okay, what is your pain points? How can we help with that? How can we bridge your relationships? Um, how can we help you with your teams? How can we help your teams function well um, so that you trust them, that you can predict them? Um, so those are some of the, the base level things, I think. Um, is that kind of informal you know, think, or do you have an actual like formal charter or formal working agreement that you build with the coaches and the areas that you're going and interacting with? I would say it's maybe a little less formal than I would like it right now. Um, that's something that is on my list. Um, I think it's it's more strategizing with the, the leaders in that particular area, right? So each of them has a little bit of different setup. So I bring, right now, I don't really have coaches in many of the areas. So it's, I would go in meet with the senior manager or the senior product owner, whoever it is in that area. With the Scrum Masters, we take a look at the different teams. We talk about the products that they're they're planning on building and saying, where where is our biggest impact, right? Okay, you've got new teams. We can help you with that. Um, you've got predictability here, or you've got a vendor issue. Okay, maybe we can help, help bridge that or help go work with that vendor. Um, so that it's a little more informal. That's just where we're at right now. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those things that's interesting because when you think of the service that you provide to your organization, it's it's a service. It's not a product. And I think services and products are a little different. And sometimes if you try to use product measurements on a service, they don't quite make sense. And so I think there's just something to be careful of when you start thinking about that. Like you may not want to, I don't know. I'm just thinking of like, like you can't just put a revenue on your service because you're not really charging that back. If you're, oh, I don't know, maybe you are, I don't know. But if you're not charging anything back to your organization and then you say, but we saved you this much money, did you really? Like, you know, it's really hard to put a dollar amount on that. I think that's really, I would agree with that. That's really hard to do. Yeah. There's a softer side of it that you sometimes it's just like, did we help you solve your problems? Is, is it better today than it was a month ago or two months ago? And I think, you know, you can have some of those check-ins, maybe those, um, I don't know, net promoter scores, actual net promoter score, other things like that that you could use. But those are some of the things I look at, right, as I'm rating the area, like I would do, you know, as as I I have to do reviews or give feedback, I would do a net promoter score for that area and ask, you know, hey, these are the, you know, you were supporting four different teams over this past year. Let me just send a short survey to them. Would you recommend this person? Where they help? I th- let me see if I can remember the questions I used. One was, um, you know, how likely would you recommend this person to work with you on another team? Right, that was one of them. Um, you know, how helpful? How how well do you think this person impacted your ability, right, to do good work or the team's ability to do good work? Um, you know, so some questions like that. Um, I definitely have used. How often do you um, kind of collect that information for a, a coach or a scrum master? Um, some of it's more informal. Some of it's, you know, I have some, some people on a monthly cadence where I'm kind of meeting with them or or checking in, um, you know, some of it's HR process where it's more formal every Mm -hmm. quarter. Um, so I I wish I could do it a little more closely, right? I, I think if I had, if there was more of me or more coaches, I would say, you know, spend time with the different teams, observe them. Um, you know, work on strategy with them on a regular basis, talk with the leaders, right? Kind of get feedback on them as well, but involve, involve them in the, in the process um, and do that as regularly as you can. 
So if if Jeff and Jeff gave you the magic wand to wave in your organization right now, right there you go. Uh, what what would be the big rock that you would be trying to remove and and why? Big rock. Um, wow, I'm trying to think of which rock. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think right now. Um, you know, in some sense, I, I describe it to people because Toyota is still like the number one car manufacturer. Um, there's a lot of parts of Toyota that feel like, why should we change? Why mm -hmm. should we do something different? Um, you know, and in some ways they're right, right? We can't discount that, right? Their job and part of the organization's job is, is uh, discipline and predictability with production. Right, they have an existing system, right, that that is working. Um, so I think I think if I could wave one though, it would be helping people think a little bit longer term about that. Um, you know, there is a risk to changing any existing business. There's a risk to to challenging that. Um, you know how, but you need people to think in a longer term of yeah, we need to challenge this in a safe way. Uh, to figure out what's coming. Um, if if there's one industry that's undergoing massive change right now, it's the automotive industry. Right. I, I don't know what things are going to look like in 10 years. There's a whole lot of competing ideas, a whole lot of things that are out there from mobility, uh, from fractional ownership, from electrification, uh, from autonomous vehicles, right? All of those things just, it's a very complex picture. No one, no one has a crystal ball on what it's going to look like. Right, so uh, getting people to to really realize that that things are changing, um, that you can't just stay the same, um, I think would probably be the biggest thing I I would I would wave my magic wand at. It's interesting yeah. that you bring that up. Um, two things, quick, Jeff, and then I'll shut up and let you talk. Um, the the first thing I was going to say, just that that sense of urgency, that need to change, um, like man, I, I I feel it all the time because I think we're working in a very similar industry where. We don't, they, they don't need to change. They're, they're making money right now, but that long-term vision of five to 10 years from now, they're just, they're not thinking about that, or it, it doesn't seem like a lot of the people are thinking about it. And then the second comment that I had was really quickly on what you just said about the automotive industry. Um, just wrapped up large scale scrum with, with Craig Larman. Uh, he's out at BMW right now. And it, it's literally for that reason. Uh, so he's a less adoption inside their uh, automated uh, or automated uh, driving section, whatever, I butchered that, but you get what I'm saying. Autonomous, uh, autonomous driving. Yeah. Thank yeah. you both. Um, <laughs> uh, he, you know, they're going through less adoption out there because they've, re BMW is recognized if they don't have an autonomous vehicle in five years, they're done. Like the, the, they won't be able to compete with the, the other industry leaders that are out there. And so uh, I think that it just an interesting point and ties right in with what you were saying is that that sense of urgency that need to change and to have that vision to see a few years out from if, if we're not working on the things that are going to change the industry in a few years from from now, right now, uh, we're, we're behind. So, yeah, I think I think it's actually, you know, if you if you dig even deeper into the short term focus, I think, um, you know, it's interesting to see what even Eric Reyes has been doing. Uh, the lean startup author, right? He's he's really says and has identified, and I would agree with him that the 
quarterly profit um, focus, right, really drives a lot of the short-term thinking. Yeah. Um, but even beyond that, right, you can't do, you can't just fault you know CEOs or or leaders um, in that it's actually the shareholders, which is actually us, right? And we're looking and we want companies to be profitable and have a margin and some return on our investment with it. And the focus is this short-term gain with it. So um, what are we doing, right? Is, is there a different model? He's actually looking at different models of, of shareholders, right? Can you, can you class shares as long-term ownership, right? Where you can't actually sell it all that often. Right, and you're or you're bought into the long-term profitability of a company rather than just the short-term gains of it. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know where that's going to go. I just think it's an interesting topic, and if you really dig down to it, I think that's one of the core roots behind a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of games that can be played in, uh, you know, publicly held companies to to make those quarterly earnings to sell things that really just kill your, you know, long-term. Uh, viability as a company and sometimes that stuff happens just to make the numbers right and um you know and, and it doesn't even have to be a, a publicly held company sometimes we see it with just with the budgeting processes in, in organizations it's like hey things look really good big afflux of money oh we didn't get quite the whatever we were looking for but it was still really good uh, big downflux in money, right? And like these big swings happen back and forth and it's it's very short term instead of more consistent pacing um, and just, you know, being okay that, you know what, one year it might be, you know, 20% margins, next year it might be 30 and the next year it might be 10. Like sometimes it goes up and down and it depends on the markets and so many other factors and you can't just say it's going to be this if we put this much money in, in front of that. You don't have that predictability, right? I think it's interesting if you look at at some of the companies, uh, Menlo, um, you know, I, I would maybe Valve, some of the other ones, right? It the ownership model is really interesting to me. I, I like to think about that. Um, I think some of the ones that have the most control in doing that are honestly single owner, privately mm-hmm. held, right? And they have a they have a lot of flexibility in doing that. Um, you know, I I've been in single owner, I've been in uh, employee owned. I thought employee owned would necessarily change, you know, wouldn't have some of the problems of a corporate company, but it still can, can still have the same thing. They're still thinking about why should employees invest in this company if we can't make, you know, X amount return on investment this year, they're going to pull the money out and then we've got trouble, right? So it, it's still a focus on that. Um, so it, it is, the ownership model is interesting and does drive a lot of the culture yeah. and behavior as well. Yeah, it all comes down to the system, right? And yeah, system, and, yep. right. The, the whole system. entire system uh, that drives your culture. So, we went, we yeah. Went deep there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone want to join? Uh, join Washington? Try to fix the system? <laughs> no, that would take that would take a long time. Um, so you had um, back at the the face to face, you had thrown an interesting metric out at I me. Mean, I don't I don't remember exactly what it was, but you're something to the effect of the amount of data that um, Toyota is collecting right now, um, and you you had contrasted it with Facebook, and it was just a mind mind boggling number. Do you happen to remember what what that was that you were talking about? Yes. So uh, I'm not going to give you an exact number right now because uh, we're recorded <laughs> at the moment, but um, sure, it, sure. Toyota really cares about 
first of all, they really care about privacy and security of the data. So uh, no, no, nothing is being collected or processed without people's consent on it. Um, but a lot of the things people are looking for or services or actions uh, within a vehicle, um, I'll just take an example. Say if you go to autonomous vehicles, is everything going to be processed on site or there's going to be a ton of connections to other vehicles, to other networks, to traffic, to maps? I mean, you just even maps and navigation as a good example, right? There's a lot of data out and forth. Um, but if you go to autonomous, you know, it, are you, can you process all the stuff on vehicles? You have to utilize a cloud, how much data is going back and forth between those. Um, you know, if you're not even autonomous, even some of the, the services we're offering like collision avoidance or collision detection, right? And notification, um, you know, how much data has to be processed on that, right? Or, or off and on the vehicle continually. Um, so there's a lot of connectivity, a lot of data going on and off. Um, some of it can be enabled, disabled based on whatever services people sign up on um, and the frequency of it. So we're playing around a lot right now with the processing, the data frequency, how often we store this. But there's a lot, a lot of data coming off the vehicles um, or could come off the vehicles, depending on what services you're using. at the time. Which I, I found really interesting, especially when you were talking earlier, just the the complexity of different areas of the organization being at different um, stages of agility, dealing with different constraints as far as outside vendors working in certain ways, um, more manufacturing uh, to more R&D areas. And now you're also thinking about just stupid, stupid amounts of data being thrown in there for different reasons, right? So you're just complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity, which, I mean, kudos to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's fun. I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. We have we have some really smart people here. You know, it's it's always great to be in a room with people who are smarter than you. You always learn a lot. It can be intimidating sometimes, and you're like, "What am I doing here? Like, I, I don't know if I have enough to input on this specific conversation." Um, but it's really it's really about the network and the connections and helping people get things done and looking at it from a different perspective. Um, you know, and and how how can we challenge ourselves and how can we improve things. So, so co coming in from the outside, um, I, I'm curious, before you took on your, your role, um, what did you think was going to be your biggest challenge? And I'm curious what ended up being your biggest challenge. I think would be the biggest challenge. Um, I was, I did some homework, right? And I, I met with some of the people. I had a pretty good idea that, um, some of the vendor relationships would be a challenge, uh, just the number of vendors we're working within the contracts around that. Um, I think um, some of the hard dates and the integration, so the integration piece and getting people to integrate early and often, like Jeff mentioned, um, you know, I, that, that can be a challenge. Um, environments, um, can we operate in a production environment, um, you know, or, or so that was one of them. Also, you know, how to, you know, one of the big, big areas of focus has been, okay, how do we do, you know, rolling over the air updates, right? And how do we reduce risk around that, right? You're not necessarily going to roll it to everyone, you know, how do we do rolling, rolling wave on that? Um, so, so I think those were some of the major ones that I thought of, um, you know, coming in. Uh, most of those have materialized as in some form. Um, I would say prioritization, right, and getting 
um, organization and, and buy-in across the different leaders on what are the priorities. Um, it's been a big challenge. Um, vendors, the sense of urgency with surrounding partners. I think the, the leadership in our division or the two divisions I'm working in really understands it. Um, and they're, they spend a lot of their time going around to different parts of Toyota trying to, to get buy-in around that or get us autonomy you know, for us to be able to make decisions that drive some of the behavior. Um, so they, they really buy into that, uh, which is great. Um, you know, I think the prioritization, you know, their availability because they're doing that is low, um, plus just the prioritization um, has been a challenge. Uh, vendors, um, I think, isn't there any other major ones? Um, I would say the you know one one challenge here is the mix between the percentage mix between employees and contract. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think I I didn't think about that coming in, but that's been a it is a challenge. It changes the dynamic, uh, changes you know recruiting process who you can recruit. Is Toyota a what that looks a like. union represented workforce? The factories are for sure. Um, you know, the, I believe the the production facilities are. I don't think most of the IT okay. here is. I was curious if that was another um, thing that we can, yeah, a factor in the middle. No, okay, no, it's generally not a factor. But co-employment risk, right, with contractors and what you can or can't say, and how much feedback you can give directly and mm -hmm. stuff can be a challenge. Um, so people are concerned about that. I, I was kind of curious, just just throwing those out there. Often. Um, Anecdotally, talking with people, uh, you know, they'll they'll often assume the problems are going to be technology related, or um, well, generally it's technology, or the stacks are dealing with uh, consultants, or I shouldn't say dealing; that's not what I meant. Interacting with consultants, um, and then it typically boils down to people problems. <laughs> it's always people, <laughs> people at interactions. Yeah, so I, I, I was just kind of curious if that's what it ended up being for you or not. But yeah. I'm well, good. I'm glad it, it wasn't that. You know, um, you know, sometimes there's maybe some relationship power that needs to be built in there. But prioritization is also another one that comes up. And I was going to ask um, an alignment, right? Prioritization is close with alignment between the different groups, right? And whose priority is what, and does that help me or help you or? Are we marching together on the same same path? Yeah, and the the other comment I was going to kind of add and also ask Chad Beyer um, always throw this out. Um, just talking about organizational whip, um, the thing that's just eating away the the plague of too much work in in process uh, at our organizations. Um, it, it sounded like that was also one of the things tangentially or related to prioritization, which is just everybody wants their stuff done now and not understanding you know, the more we're working on, the slower we're going. Yeah, I think, um, you know, honestly, you know, if I look at the different scaling models and, and the different patterns, one of one of the bigger challenges, of, and if I'm thinking about it, you're, you're keying now, um, you know, do you, previously, I guess we had been organized more around the uh, vehicle launches or model years, right? Because there's major updates around those. Um, so one advantage of that is you have a kind of a dedicated team around this vehicle or set of vehicles and they all, they own more of it end to end. One of the disadvantages is because those vehicles overlap, right. And you've got hardware in the mix, 
um, and you have to work with vendors to specify what they're going to provide to it, that you don't get a continuity in building up a product line between those. Uh, so if you take navigation, for example, okay, one, you have one set of people building it and another set of people completely separate building something different that's supposed to be an incremental, you know, on it. Um, so that was, that was kind of a major challenge in, okay, how are we going to evolve this product line? How are we going to own this set of products and evolve them in a continuous um, way? So we moved away from that, right, around product product ownership. We've got product owners over at Navigation, you know, um, virtual assistant, embedded apps, mobile apps, like different, different areas like that. Um, but because of the WIP, because we've got hundreds of thousands of in-market customers, we've got near-term systems that are going out plus next generation systems that have already started, right? And people are building stuff on them. There is there is a, a lot of tension between those priorities, um, right? If you could reduce the overall cycle time of the, the build, right? So that things were more sequential, um, that would help a lot. Um, and that's that's a lot of where we're talking, you know, where we're thinking about insourcing versus creating more of a, a sustainable platform that we build on top of. So that's one of our, I would say, one of the key structural challenges we've got is you can't just do product ownership because the cycle time on the major platforms is too long. If you do dedicated teams on the platforms, then you don't get the continuous product ownership evolution. Um, and then with all the vendors, like how do you really get an end-to-end -end owner of something? Like who owns your navigation experience, mm -hmm. right? And that ties in with your virtual assistant, right? If you're going to talk to it, it ties in with Google or whoever else we use for a mapping. Uh, it ties in with the application, you know, the HM, the head unit, we call the, the in-dash system, the head unit, ties in with the um, you know, user interface there ties in with the firmware and the actual hardware that's being built by a different vendor, and then the backend data and system, right? So there's a lot of connected pieces, um, and just getting end-to-end -end ownership around that and reducing the whip, right, is is a challenge. You mentioned uh, scaling in there, and I'm just curious: is there a uh, a framework that you're kind of prescribed to or more ideals that you're kind of going with, or is it more of just an ad hoc approach to working at scale? Um, it certainly depends on how, you know, I think the first question is how many teams do we really need to work together to integrate? Right. And if we can, if you can reduce that from an architecture standpoint or a dependency standpoint, right, you've reduced your complexity. Mm -hmm. Right. So some of the teams, fairly standalone or they're working with two or three teams, you know, it's not as much of an issue. Um, a couple of the groups, you know, we've got upwards of 30 different teams, some vendors, some internal, et cetera. Um, so those, honestly, we're leaning more towards a safe model, at least at the pro, um, PI planning standpoint, mm -hmm. just, just trying to get a handle around the schedule and the dependencies between the different teams. Um, I would say that wasn't necessarily in place to start with, um, but we've kind of learned we need a little bit more structure at that level. Um, you know, just the self-organization aspect, because te because teams are kind of split sometimes between in-market or current generation, um, we were having trouble with that end-to-end -end ownership. Mm -hmm. um, so. And I think uh, a lot of teams just having that, you know, that that phrase, making the hidden visible, like let's let's just 
you know, make these connections at least visible, you know, making these dependencies visible and at least start having conversations around them as opposed to just these hidden impediments that are consistently uh, holding up our teams from being able to deliver done software or whatever the, the case may be. So we have some teams doing Nexus as well, and that's been working in some of the smaller context, mm -hmm. um, right, where you have, I think we have five teams, right, and they're trying to, you know, they've got a little bit of a um, uh, Nexus integration team that is responsible for making sure stuff gets pulled together um, right at the end of every sprint. Um, we've got some elements of Scrum at scale, right, with the fractal product ownership, um, you know, it, it does look different in each of the areas just because I've got so much. Um, As you say, that's pretty cool. It's like a, a laboratory of all the different scaling frameworks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we have a little bit of that because um, it's not just it's not just we have one product, right? If you've got the thing is most of the most of the scaling frameworks are built around how do you get multiple teams that are working on one product. Mm -hmm. Right. Even safe is really that way. You, you break it out into release trains and you've got one product and these teams really say into that. Now, if you have multiple products, multiple teams, none of them really answer that question. Yeah. Gotcha. That's like what so, better answer would be. Can you descale? Can you yeah. create, you know, can you split it yeah. out? I haven't, I haven't been able to in some of these situations. So what are we going to do? Gotcha. Well, you, if you haven't, you should go to Larman's class. <laughs> How to descale? I, I know. I he would he might get run out here. <laughs> it, it would definitely be a thought provoking uh, conversation. Yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, I would I would love to go. Yeah, I'm still on my kick. I just wrapped up the training a, a few weeks ago now, so um, I can't shut up about it at some point. So, uh, but anyway, I highly recommend the, the the class to you. So. Awesome. So we've had a great conversation, Lucas. At this time, um, is there anything you want to plug or anything you want to promote um, on the podcast? Um, I guess I would just say to any any scrub masters out there, right, who are who are listening to this or coaches, um, you know, just really understand when you go into an organization, understand the history, why they got there, um, you know. It, understand the people, build the relationships, um, but also meet teams where they're at, right? And and don't get frustrated if change is slow. Um, some of the places where change is most needed or is most impactful are in some of these large companies, right? And the, the larger the company, the more inertia, the more established product lines you've got going on. It's not wrong for things to be slow or to take a little bit more time to get where you want. Um, so, so be patient. Things that are valuable uh, can take a long time and can involve a lot of hard work. Um, so just encouragement, right? If, if you find yourself in a great, you know, startup situation, you can control everything. You, or the team has full autonomy. Great. If you find yourself in a established company where there's some boundaries that you can't, can't go around, that's not wrong. That that's just a different situation. Um, so just understand the context, meet the teams where they're at and, Think think long term. We want these. We want the organizations to think long term. Uh, so we need to think long term as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, hopefully we have you back on the show in the future. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. 
see you next time.